Welcome to the Reverberations podcast. This series is curated and hosted by me, Zara Arshad, and made possible with funding and support generously provided by the Design History Society UK. Reverberations as an initiative was originally proposed in late 2018 as an events programme, a set of in-person conversations that would seek to address marginalisation, underrepresentation, and erasure in the UK's cultural and creative sectors. This group of talks was partly driven by my own harmful experiences of the fields in which I professionally practice, specifically museums, academia and design. While the podcast that you are currently listening to, a reincarnation of the aforementioned events programme, was developed throughout 2020, a year defined by COVID-19, the murder of George Floyd, and the subsequent heightened energy of the important Black Lives Matter campaign, in addition to new surges in anti-Asian hate. As these happenings and more have been taking place around me, I have doubted the value of public discussion, querying how can we move beyond lip service and help to enact meaningful change. The exchanges that I have had mostly during lockdown with the brilliant group of individuals who feature in this series offer glimpses into the possibilities and imaginings of how such change might be achieved, such as through collectively creating new systems, building networks of care and empathy, and thinking more carefully about whose voices we choose to amplify. The works, ideas and approaches briefly encapsulated here have greatly informed my own thinking. I hope these recordings will be similarly useful for you. Organised around three key themes, institutions, divergent models, and decolonising design and culture, season one of the podcast broadly focuses on history making, particularly in relation to design history and design studies. The conversations that feature implicitly reflect on how and where our histories have conventionally been told and who gets to tell them through considering the work and experiences of BIPOC peers and colleagues who have navigated, continue to navigate, and frequently resist institutional structures and frameworks in varying ways. Season one of the Reverberations podcast was recorded remotely on Zoom as a result of the ongoing COVID-19 global pandemic. Please excuse any everyday life sounds that you might hear in the background. Our first speaker for the theme of divergent models is Vivian Chan, a design historian, researcher, and occasional image maker. Viv is currently a PhD candidate at University of Nottingham as part of the project Cultures of Occupation in 20th Century Asia, and also teaches on the design research module in interior architecture and design at Nottingham Trent University. Welcome to the Reverberations podcast, Viv. Hi. So to provide listeners with a bit of context, Viv and I have worked closely on a number of design research related projects over the past few years. And many of our conversations seem to come back in one way or another to the idea of a grassroots or bottom up way of working. And this includes um, with regards to conducting design history research. And so Viv, I thought we could start the conversation off by introducing and talking a little bit about the Hong Kong Design History Network, 
a collective which you co-founded, of course, with some of our peers. Can you tell us more about what this initiative is, what it entails, how it came about? And I'm really specifically interested also in exploring the why. Why did you decide to create this network, especially at a time you know, where there are a number of institutions that have recently popped up, like M+, like CHAT, Hong Kong Heritage Museum, which actually has been around for a while now and has focused on design, as well as the Asia Art Archive. What gap are you specifically looking to fill with your network? Yeah, so just to introduce who is part of the collective. So the Hong Kong Design History Network is six of us, um, myself, Sunny Chan, Dr. Juliana Kay, Janice Lee, Mina Song, and Jennifer Wong. And um, essentially, we started out all as either students at the VNA, RCA, or as alumni, plus some of the first uh, fellows for the Design Trust RCA Fellowship. And it just so happened that quite a number of us were at the VNA RCA at the same time. And so because of that, we uh, just started to come together just to share ideas and talk. And we just had the urge to collaborate. And particularly for me, I was just finishing my MA thesis and I was working on Hong Kong design history. And so through my tutors, you know, I was getting introduced to some alumni and other students and so on. And um, yeah, we just started to get together. And this was also around the time that M plus and chat were really kind of starting out or starting to hire um, curators, starting their collections or kind of announcing their projects. And so that was a really important instigator and sort of was getting us excited about, you know, there's, there's actually institutions really centering on design specifically. And of course, Heritage Museum and the AAA have been around for a long time. So the institutions were there. There was clearly an interest professionally. But in academic spheres, we were really noticing a gap in the scholarship, particularly around design, design history mm-hmm. and material culture, which we always thought was a bit weird given Hong Kong's place in this kind of modern global network of things, if you like. The explosion of post-war manufacturing and production. It's well known in history that it's, or or kind of (laughs) embedded in its history, that it's this entrepreneur to stuff is going in and out of this place all the time. And yet Mm. we're seeing a real lack in the scholarship, in the narrative, talking about um, Hong Kong material culture. And of course, we were reading a lot about Hong Kong identity politics. I mean, that's been a consistent narrative throughout that late 90s, early 2000s. And then, of course, with Occupy Central in um, 2014. But we were also feeling that there needs to be more nuance in the historical narrative and the narrative of identity. And we knew through our own own work that you know, the material is there, the interest is there, but it's really the non-textual evidence and material approach that's still really yet to kind of take hold in Hong Kong history and Hong Kong studies overall. So that was a real big incentive from a kind of academic point of view. 
but we're also interested in pushing more interdisciplinary approaches. So the team comes from all sorts of different backgrounds. While we all came together under the umbrella of history of design, um, we have people who've worked in fashion and textiles, public arts, curators, architects. Uh, I myself have a background in illustration, animation. And so, you know, we, we had an interest and also a set of skills where we're kind of starting out, many of us starting out as design practitioners. And as a group, we think there's more room for design history in Hong Kong's general design and historical pedagogy. And we have many colleagues who really wanted to open up these discussions. So we thought, no time like the present, really. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that you all come from these different disciplinary backgrounds. Um, how do you feel that's kind of fed into the project in practice or the initiative in practice? So it means that we have a lot of background skills, particularly when we're thinking about public outreach, which is one of the big emphasis that we have as a team, because while we understand the need for academic research and there's clearly an academic audience, we're also interested in reaching the public audience as well. And particularly in the last couple of years, we know there is an intense desire and urgency for public discourses and public uh, meeting places to talk about these things. And that also comes from getting to know some of the artists and designers already based in Hong Kong and working out of Hong Kong. And yet there's not very many arenas for them to work in more theoretical or conceptual ways. So part of that is also thinking how can we kind of help to facilitate that development of ideas in terms mm. of design practice, but also academic research and methodology and have this kind of connecting meeting place in the middle for both of those things. Well, speaking about public reach and well, reaching different publics, your first major project as Hong Kong Design History Network will be an exhibition for the London Design Biennale, or LDB. Now, of course, LDB was originally scheduled to open last year in 2020, but has been postponed to June 2021, so this year due to the COVID-19 global pandemic. But can you tell us a bit more about your exhibition? How has it developed during the extra time that you've now had to think about the project? Can you also tell us a bit more about your curatorial directions and how you hope to deliver the exhibition? Yeah, so the network in itself started to become kind of more serious than simply meeting up and talking when the opportunity <laughs> arose to curate the Hong Kong Pavilion or LBB. And this was back in 2018 when they first announced the theme, which is resonance. And so when we were thinking about the theme of resonance, um, we were thinking about how Hong Kong's history like many colonial histories, are dispersed in archives all over the world and how that affects the narrative of history of that place. And of course, that's very much part of the discourse right now. But in mm. 2018, we were approaching it from a curious point of view, from a kind of 
it, it was just a starting point for all of us as a team to think about more nuanced ways of working with this idea of resonance. And uh, this was also around the time that most of the team were still based in London before Sunny and Mina moved back to Hong Kong. Jen was already in Hong Kong. And right now we're actually split between the UK, Hong Kong and Seoul. And in a way, working across these places, these spaces, and Mm. kind of in the digital realm um, was also kind of a bit of an inspiration for our direction as well. And from the beginning, we were really keen that our sort of collaboration was constant, that um, one side wouldn't necessarily precedent over the other, and that our collaborative take um, within the network would expand to the designers we would work with as well. And so when we were looking for and inviting design studios to join us on the project, we were specifically Mm. looking for parts of their practice that were really driven by research or theoretical approaches. And it was really in the personal projects and the smaller projects that we were really seeing that kind of work taking place. Lots of them also kind of engaged in collecting or design, architectural history as part Mm. of their practice as well. So that was Mm. a really conscious decision and really looking for up and coming studios that had been established, but, you know, they weren't necessarily the kind of token names when you think of the sort of Hong Kong design scene, as it were. Mm. Um, We were really looking for depth and breadth and a willingness to work in the way that we sort of envisioned And we know that it's time consuming. It's a challenging approach for a project like this where, you know, everyone's sort of on a level playing field. We're working together all the time throughout the research process, all the way through to design and development. But we think that it has created a nuanced and conceptual outcome, which we hope can accurately reflect the process of writing a history of Hong Kong in a way that also reflects the current, I guess, socio-political landscape of Hong Kong as well as it is, and trying to engage the audience in the way that we have actually seen over the last couple of years. So, you know, we have spent a lot of time reflecting over the last two and a half years since we had the idea to join LDB. And of course, you know, Hong Kong and the world has changed completely how we work has changed completely since then and and sometimes we kind of look back and kind of laugh at our naivety in 2018 (laughs) (laughs) um but you know in many ways yeah our intent and that sense of urgency has only become more and more clear over that period of time and we have seen kind of a much more widespread public concern for Hong Kong's narrative. And between the team, we have been really grateful to have each other in this process and actually have established the way we have worked as a form of supporting each other and talking things out. Yeah, so it's been a journey so far, but we definitely actually look back on how we've constructed this as an asset because it means that we've been able to be much more flexible and still push forward the concepts and ideas that we had right from the beginning 
So our pavilion is called Sand Table and we are engaging with these ideas of colonial fantasies and myth making and legends as a sort of starting point for engaging with the space and through the installation and through our web platform we'll essentially invite visitors and our audience to reconstruct these colonial narratives which we've chosen one called Aquan Leading the Way which is one of these origin stories of Hong Kong that's relating to essentially the British landing on the beach at Hong Kong Island mm-hmm. and this person called Aquan kind of taking the officers around the island and then announcing the name Hong Kong and so we want to play with this idea of you know when we write histories based on you know so-called empirical evidence you know how much of that is actually part of the myth-making process when we go into the archive how is it as much interpreting a story as it is voicing truths Um, Mm. and this is something that people have been playing with particularly in kind of public art and on social media around Hong Kong particularly in the last year and we think it really can we hope that it will get to a point where it really encapsulates that kind of personality and dry humor and kind of cynicism that has arisen but also at the same time offers a sense of hope and agency so that's where we're at at the moment the exhibition opens at Somerset House in June So hopefully you'll be able to see more of that then. But, you know, speaking of of process um, and approaches, um, in preparing for the exhibition, I'm aware that, you know, you've had to negotiate many different local, local to Hong Kong archives. And we, like you and I, have also had separate conversations about the place and the role of archives in East and Southeast Asia, specifically because this is where our research often departs from. Can you perhaps share a bit more, speak a bit more about your thinking in relation to this? Yeah, we always somehow end up talking about coming back to archives and (laughs) find it such a you know, on, on the face of it, you know, archives, at, at the beginning when we were starting out with this pavilion, we were kind of worried like, oh, you know, is archives, you know, sexy enough for this kind of setting? But actually, I think that, you know, people are intrinsically interested in collections of things and constructions of narratives through those collections. So when I think about archives, I tend to come from a place of thinking of them in quite mundane, fluid ways. And I think, you know, every researcher in some way, every designer as well, is some is in some way constructing their own archive of sorts. And I think this is especially so when you do work outside of Euro-American geographies, precisely because those archives might not be so obvious in the first place because they are dispersed Mm. and because you're kind of picking up pieces in different places and this is especially so I think in design history where we are working with so many different kinds of sources and in the case of Hong Kong you know even though it was previously a British colony 
and therefore some structures are kind of embedded as part of that there is still a lot of work to be done particularly in terms of material culture research um, and it's in <laughs> yeah for sure and it's interesting because even though these archives are intact mm. um, we found that visual material culture within those archives are often sidelined to the point of being you know thrown away they'd be keeping a receipt for a photograph rather than the photograph itself and um, so for these we're really relying these kinds of materials we're really relying on smaller collections smaller initiatives personal archives or just simply the world around for access and it's especially important for kind of more localized everyday objects and spaces. So for our work on the pavilion, we engaged with both, both larger institutions and smaller archives. And we also brought the design team into the archives together so that we could all together get to see and understand the spread of how Hong Kong design history is being narrated, who for and on what terms. And I think this really resonates with lots of the conversations that you and I have had before about the nature of archives and archiving as a practice shifting in East and Southeast Asia towards grassroots and community projects which is so exciting to see. And it means a lot for us as researchers, but those who are also local to these territories as new ways to research and collaborate across disciplines and think about the meaning of research in its context. Yeah, that's really interesting. As you were talking, I was just wondering about the smaller archives though that you mentioned, where are those located? Who owns them? How did they come together? How did you even discover them? So I can't take too much credit, um, but actually <laughs> um, Sunny and Jen through M Plus, but also their own, Sunny's own work as a kind of design researcher, um, design and exhibition consultant. They knew of John Wu, who is a graphic designer by trade but he'd amassed a huge collection, originally starting with Henry Steiner's graphic design. So ephemera, all the way to work in progress. And he'd actually also developed a pretty close relationship to mm. Steiner. And so that's sort of the start of his collection. Uh, but then it sort of grew and grew and expanded into other things. And so, I've visited a couple of times and it's, you know, his archive at the time was just in the corner of his studio. But when I say corner, it was more like he and his colleague were sort of pushed up against the window and everything else was kind of stacked up in boxes. <laughs> oh, wow. Absolutely filled to the ceiling with stuff um, and really valuable stuff. You know, and the range is from like hat boxes to toys to government leaflets posters he has a huge collection of original letterpress business cards letterheads you name it he has he has something in that realm so it was really interesting to 
see his collection and see where his kind of intention and ambition for the archive to go and also kind of understanding where he sees the role of his archive is as part of the wider storytelling of Hong Kong and Hong Kong design. Um, And I think for him, it really stemmed from this frustration about this kind of lack, lack of knowledge of local design history, but also um, a fascination with how, you know, they may not have been designers, but typesetters, for example, were really bending the rules of graphic design with business cards. You know, they would be bilingual. There'd be like four different typographic styles in both languages, but somehow visually it worked for him. And so there's this sort of, this kind of parallel narrative here where, you know, on one side, there's perhaps this reverence for a typical application of, I suppose you could call like traditional European mid-century modern modernist design values, but then also understanding that there is a local visual language that just hasn't been explored as part of this Mm. design history, knowing that it needed to be preserved. And lots of those things, you know, he just know of or he'd walk past the old calligraphers or brokers I suppose for printed ephemera printed material you know they'd be closing down their shops or closing down the business or someone perhaps would have passed away and you know the stand is just sitting there and he'd just ask around and raid the thing and you know (laughs) essentially save the material from being dumped So it definitely comes from a place of really being on the ground, slightly guerrilla in the way that um, he collects. And I get the sense that more and more design practitioners especially are thinking about these things in this way and kind of conducting sort of rescue missions for shop Mm. signs and doing a lot of interviews and oral histories and so on. And so we're now in this really exciting point while it's sort of there's this undertone of real impending doom and destruction there's also a real fire in the community to develop their own narratives take control of how their histories are told and so it's exciting to be a part of that for sure Yeah, I mean, like collecting ephemera and objects to the point that you're really kind of stacked up (laughs) against them in your studio is (laughs) quite a a sight, I would imagine. But that also kind of made me think about the practicalities of maintaining something like this. And obviously, you can't necessarily speak to how John Wu might maintain his archive. But I was thinking about this in relation to the Hong Kong Design History Network, how to kind of keep a project like that going? How do you source funding? How do you find the time and energy to keep it going? You know, many of you, if not all of you, I believe have other jobs, have full-time jobs um, in various different fields and sectors from museums to academic teaching to conducting your own projects. So how do you find the time to maintain Hong Kong design history alongside all of this, all of these other rich initiatives that you're all involved in? Yeah, I mean, practically it is 
a huge challenge. And so far, this has been all done in our spare time, in our weekends, in our evenings, and totally self-funded. I mean, for the Biennale, we had, we have received funding from Design Trust and the Hong Kong Arts Development Council, but a lot of the original funding pots that we were kind of relying on for the majority of the funding were eventually taken away due to the pandemic, or we never even got a foot in. And so from the Biennale Pavilion side, we do have that institutional support, but it's still, it still, it doesn't cover everything. And we've therefore been uncompensated as part of that for all of our own stuff, our own platforms, such as our website that has come out of our own pockets. More, more recently, we've been discussing crowdfunding and membership schemes for a while. We've been discussing it for a while and we're now at this stage where we feel that this might actually be our best option and possibly the most welcome as well from our audience in terms of independence. And I think that's a huge concern for a lot of our audience and, and for us as well. And so hopefully by the time this podcast airs, you know, we'll have actually opened our Kickstarter and uh, Patreon pages. And we're hoping that this can actually create a more sustainable model for us as we fully intend for this to go beyond the Biennale. And so far in terms of applying for funding, it's just taken so much energy just in those applications that actually, you know, we know that there's a need and a desire and we have interests. We just need the time and support in order to fully realize a lot of the things that we want for the network. So yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a common story that these kinds of projects are, you know, done in our weekends and evenings. And we definitely do not glamorize it. I think as a team, it's safe to say all of us have suffered from some kind of burnout in the last two years. But I think that's why it has worked so much better as a team because it's as much a, a group of friends supporting each other as it is work colleagues and we find kind of our ways to contribute when we can and when we need to and for me personally I see this as a feminist approach as well where we are really trying to prioritize our health and both mental and physical and the integrity of what we're doing and mm. Yeah, it, it's definitely a work in progress. But I think this is a direction a lot of people are taking now in light of pretty toxic work cultures, you know, everywhere. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it will go well and good luck, you know, for your crowdfunding and Patreon campaigns. What kind of outcomes would you be working on post Biennale, do you think? Well, we're definitely keen to produce a publication, both reflecting on the Biennale itself and the process of putting that together, but also as a sort of team initiative and I suppose almost like a manifesto. So I think that will be our kind of first project post Biennale, um, which I'm really keen to do as a as a kind of 
self-publishing advocate myself. But then, you know, we're, we're keen on all sorts of different levels to try a lot of different platforms. So, yeah, we're keen to do more traditional academic um, outcomes. So conferences, conference panels, and perhaps organizing our, our own symposiums. That has been quite a popular move more recently with independent research groups. But we're also keen to do more public-facing outcomes, so public workshops, more exhibitions, more self-publishing. Yeah, and we'll also continue to uh, work on our online platforms. So over the last year, we've been publishing newsletters just while we're sort of waiting for the LDB pavilion to realise Um, But we're exploring things like opening a Discord, uh, which I think would be a really cool way to interact directly with our audience and readers and actually engage in a proper exchange, especially while we're sort of spread across multiple continents. I think it could be a really interesting space in itself to Mm. produce. Yeah, I mean, I think it it sounds like such an eclectic range of planned outcomes. And, you know, along with the Biennale, I'm really excited to kind of see all of that come to fruition. We've spoken, or at least you've spoken a lot about these different ways of disseminating research. And earlier on in the conversation, you also discussed the fact that many of the members of the Hong Kong Design History Network come from these different disciplines, whether it be fashion and textiles or architecture and so on. I thought we could maybe zoom zoom in a little bit more and discuss your approach as an independent scholar, um, your approach to research more broadly, because you know, you and I have often talked about different ways of disseminating and sharing design history research. Can you maybe speak to this a little bit more just with regards to uh, your own research? Yeah, so for me, I've just now gone part-time, my PhD, um, for the write-up phase of my PhD. And this was Mm -hmm. kind of out of a conscious knowledge that I personally don't want to go down, I suppose, a traditional academic route. I really love teaching. I currently teach. But I think like a lot of the other avenues we are seeing right now, I think there are also many other ways to share knowledge and research outside the institution and forming the research, the Hong Kong Design History Network in itself is one of those sort of experiments in that. But I think it also in terms of decolonizing too, you know, if we're going to be decolonizing both design and history I do think there is opportunity to go from both inside and outside of the current education system Um, yeah and so right now my goal is just to spend more time thinking about these two avenues and one of those is as I I just mentioned previously about self-publishing I think about that a lot as a medium For me personally, as a researcher, I just I see it as a way to engage 
in a more tactile way of disseminating knowledge that isn't finite. And, and it's also um, naturally quite a collaborative medium to work in, um, mm. working across print and design, um, image making. So I call myself an occasional image maker. I think this is something that for my own practice, I would really like to develop. And I'm noticing that there is a real desire for it. And I'm also at this stage where I'm coming back to making and I think it's even more important for my practice to remember that kind of tactile connection to what we do and what we study, that I'm not sort mm-hmm. of just kind of looking down on this subject, but I'm actually engaging with it on a material level. It just makes a lot of sense to me coming mm. from a design background. So those are some of the things that I'm thinking about. And I, and I think it's sort of this active flexibility that I'm I'm trying to sort of lean into even though it's sort of a a scary feeling but I do see that perhaps could align much more with my values of like where I want my own research to go where I feel like I sit within academia and the sort of public discourse of design history overall So that's just some of the few things that I'm thinking about at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so, you know, pertinent to both our own kind of independent practices as researchers, as former makers that are returning to making, and then also thinking about these other ways of sharing research with different publics. And I think that's such a a nice note to end the the discussion on these other ways of making and sharing. Um, Thank you so much, Viv, for speaking with me today. It's been really lovely to sit down with you and have a formal chat about all of these like little threads of ideas that we have in our day-to-day conversations. Um, I'm really glad that you were able to join me tonight. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to have conversations like this with you and yeah it's always great to share um, what we're doing in this really open way with new mediums for the Design History Society so it's really exciting to see that. Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed the episode please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify or whatever platform it is that you use to access your podcasts. This will help other listeners to find us. With special thanks to Davinia Gregory, Ellie Michaela Young and Mega Rajguru for their continued support and guidance. Jenna Alsop for editing season one of the Reverberations podcast and Claire O'Mahony, chair of the UK Design History Society for championing this work.